Today's show is sponsored by Miracle Made. And oh my God, you guys, you know that I love a luxurious set of sheets. And I now have such a set of sheets because of a Miracle Made. They are bedding that has been inspired by NASA. They've got silver-infused fabrics that actually make temperature regulating a thing. Uh, so you're not like getting too hot or too cold or whatever, you know, the whole thing that happens with your body's temperature losing its mind. Miracle Made helps with that. One of the little things that my husband particularly loves about Miracle Made is that it like doesn't have as much bacteria as regular sheets because of it's infused with this silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth. So it leaves the sheets cleaner for longer. And then the thing for my husband is that it doesn't give him acne, which is like an issue for some people. But more than all of that, it's just luxuriously comfortable and delightful. And it has that cooling feeling while also being cozy. Very hard to achieve those two things at the same time. I mean, miracle made. Come on, well done. So here's what I think you should do. I think you should go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation and buy some sheets today. And if you order today, you can save 40% off. Use the promo code fake the nation at the checkout and you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. So there's just a lot of savings here, folks. Order today, you'll get 40% off. Use the promo code fake the nation. Go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation. And Miracle's so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you're not 100% satisfied, which I don't see happening, um, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation and use the code fake the nation to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash fake the nation to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. This is a HeadGum Podcast. Fake the Nation, episode 300. Hello, hello, this is Fake the Nation, where we talk about news, we talk about culture, and where we revel in J-Lo and Ben Affleck's second engagement. I'm your host, Nagin Farsad, and oh my god, I love a reboot, you know? And this version could even be better than the first one. We'll see, we don't know yet. Today, we're going to talk about Amazon's first union. We'll also talk about toddlers in Japan, talk about the connection between booze and exercise, your taxes, and cat litter. I am so excited by today's panel. It's one of those panels that just, like, I could just be like, you guys do it, and then I could just leave the room. It's that kind of panel. That's how great they are and how knowledgeable they are about the entire universe. Uh, I am first joined by co-creator of The Daily Show, founder of Abortion Access Front that you've heard me talk about on this show. Um, She's also host of the Feminist Buzzkills Live podcast. She's been on this show umpteen times because she is so goddamn wonderful it is the one and only liz winstead oh hello hello oh so happy to see your face uh also joining us to the show you i mean you know him from fake the nation but you additionally know him from this day in esoteric political history which by the way i listened to an episode recently that was about like how Nixon changed the outfits or something of the White House staff. This episode was really fun and it just like make it just made me laugh. You should check out this day in esoteric political history um, and start with the episode about Nixon's White House staff outfit change. Uh, he also just launched a show called Oprah Demics, where a couple of academics really get into it with Oprah's role in society. And he is the fabulous, the wonderful Jody Avergan. Hey, Jody. Hi, thank you for um, having me. And it's nice to know that um, we do have permission to wander away um, and the two of you could 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 handle things. 
Is that what you're getting at? I, I feel um, like no one should be wandering. Please don't yeah. wander anywhere. But I might have anyone. a package coming soon, and so if I just need to duck out, I know that you'll be in yeah, At various points of the show, we're going to be two-thirds, I think, yeah. is what's happening. Um, before we get into it, I just want to remind listeners, I'm going to be in Chicago this weekend. Yay! April 15th and 16th at the Lincoln Lodge. If you haven't gotten your tickets and you're in Chicago, please come on by. Um, and I'm going to be in Irvine at the Improv on May 4th. I'm going to be in... In Worcester, Massachusetts at Ralph's on May 6th. I'm going to be at Joe's Pub on April 19th, May 21st, May 22nd. So if you're in any of these places, come out, get your tickets, um, see the show. I love seeing Fake the Nation listeners in the live, in the live, in the wild is what I meant, but also in the live. Um, And... If you haven't signed up for our Patreon, that's where you get free bonus episodes of Fake the Nation. It is, and the bonus episodes are like a little wilder. They're a little wackier. Uh, they're kind of like uh, where we're a little more drunk. And uh, to do that, you go to patreon.com slash Nagin Farsad and you can support the show at very many levels for as little as $1. You can support the show. You don't get anything for it. You just get the satisfaction of knowing you support one of your favorite shows or one of your begrudgingly appreciated shows I don't know where I stand with you and for as little as four dollars you start getting the uh, bonus stuff so support the show and um, have access to all that and now let's get into it with topic number one the first ever Amazon warehouse in Staten Island uh, that is about 4,000 workers has just unionized. And first, I want to hear your initial reaction so we could talk about some of the details of the decidedly heartwarming story of how they unionize. Um, I continue to not shop at Amazon, for the record. But what are your thoughts on the news of this unionization? You know, I, I think it is a big, big moment. Um, and I think it also fits into this larger thing that is, you know, I, I, I go back and forth on how I feel about kind of like coolness and the sort of social factor of political movements and so forth. But, you know, I think it is clear we're living in a moment now where unionization has just it's just in the ether and is being talked about more. And I don't want to discount the fact that there's like a sort of cool factor to to unionization in a, in a way. Um, there are all what do you sorts mean, of cool. What is that? What do you mean? There's a cool factor. That to I, unionization? That I, no, I mean, look, I mean, I think that the fact that the organizer of this union was is a young black man who's really yeah. good on camera and has just like knows how to play the media game is not is like really significant here. And that people like to feel good about this story um, is how kind of I think a lot of stories take off. And so when I say sort of cool factor, I just mean that there's an element here in this, I, th- I would say, rising tide of unionization. There's obviously these larger conversations about wealth and equality and workers' rights and so forth. But I also think there's just like buzz. I know I'm throwing around a lot of these sort of keywords, but I, I just don't. And like I said, I feel I, feel, I go back and forth on how I feel about Vertical these. Vertical integration this, and yeah, synergy exactly. and yeah. <laughs> but I go back and forth on how I feel about this, but it is often where my mind goes that like, when there's something percolating through the culture, it actually does mean something. Um, now, when that percolation runs up against huge structural forces and structural inequalities, it's another story. And that's where the rubber meets the road. And we can we can talk about that. But yeah, in terms of just kind of like there's a moment now, I, th- I think there absolutely is. So, Liz, you know, I'll tell you a couple things about what they did. I mean, f- first of all, they spent two years trying to unionize two years collecting the sufficient number of votes to win unionization at this uh, warehouse. And they did it by hosting cookouts and bonfires and putting together small gatherings. They would post up at a bus stop where they knew people would be leaving, um, leaving their shift or arriving for their shift. And they did this not just during the day, but they did this in the middle of the night for the night workers. Uh, I mean, they spent two full years. There was a, this guy, Chris Small, uh, Smalls, who had been fired from Amazon by basically staging a walkout asking for Amazon to... To, to provide greater COVID protections. He was uh, fired in the aftermath of that. And then he had, um, and another coworker, Derek Palmer, was still on the inside, but he would wear like a T-shirt every day to work saying, you know, that was like I'm in the union or some some sort of T-shirt indicating that he was pro-union. Um, and the two of them, one from the outside, one from the inside, just worked tirelessly on getting this done. Imagine they like spoke probably individually to over 2,000 people 
um, and maybe all of them, I don't even know, but based on the votes, um, they, they got over 500, there was a, that was a gap of 500 where they won. Um, uh, Liz, what did you think of just this story and how they managed to do it? Well, I mean, I, I think for your listeners who don't understand Staten Island, it is really, really incredible <laughs> that uh-huh. Staten, but Staten Island workers would unionize. Staten Island used to be a very working class, really work uh, union spot, and that has transitioned to sort of Trump country and to like very skeptical of unions. And so to really see the culture of Staten Island decide, hey, we want to unionize with one of the biggest employers on our in our borough uh, is really incredible. Also, um I think the pandemic was helpful. I think that organizing over the past two years and realizing the vulnerability of employment, how much you, how many rights you don't have as workers. I mean, Amazon sort of laid bare who they were as employers from the get go. And so having that, having said that, um, when you were working in an environment where people were not leaving and so Amazon workers were so profoundly taxed with people ordering off the internet and doing that and what that meant for workers. I think that, um, I think people really had an advantage of showing how they have political power and, you know, being somebody who's a member of a union, um, Mm. equal, equal wages and workers' rights and wage disparity for God's sakes, thank God somebody made it cool. <laughs> because um, <laughs> if it was cool to not embrace that stuff, we were in trouble. But I mean, I totally hear you on that, uh, Jody. But it's like, it's it's really hard to make labor like sexy. You know, labor oh, yeah. issues to make them sexy. Well, and moreover, to kind of make it something that feels like it is... Um, meshed into the fabric of your community and you know that and really i mean again to your point you know this was a truly a grassroots effort and i'm almost as as big and epic as it feels and as much as it's a story about the sort of biggest baddest corporation in the land i'm heartened mostly by kind of how small um and grassroots this story is and that it really shows the power of just like one-on-one organizing and doing small things like standing at a bus stop and and talking to people and you know i do think that we're coming off a time when so much of our politics has like been refracted through social media and sort of like national stories and everything feels like big and epic and so forth. And I do wonder if we're now starting to realize like, oh, what actually makes a difference is the smaller scale stuff, you know, and I'm thinking about stories like this, but also like there's mutual aid societies popping up all around the country. Like, I think that's the stuff that's really going to come out of this pandemic and this era um, and really, really make a difference and kind of work from the grassroots up. I mean, and the 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 fun point I think is the 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 cool point for me goes to, and that you know it's hard to make labor sexy. What I think everybody wants out of life is to feel like they're a part of something, and that thing is fun, right? Like the thing might have some lows or whatever, and there might be some troubles, but that you have the support of people, and that together sometimes you do a cookout, and that cookout is fun, right? Like fun, I think, is a really huge driver of what makes people feel warm and fuzzy about an endeavor, right? Yeah. And for example, for Liz knows this better than fucking anyone <laughs> because the abortion access front will make things fun. When I, you know, had the just the privilege to be able to work with Liz in other parts of the country uh, with these clinics, like she makes fighting for abortion rights really fucking fun you know what i mean and i think that's something that chris smalls and Derek palmer intuitively understood right which is why cookouts and bonfires and hanging out at the bus stop and all that music and all that stuff was part of their plan and which is why i think um the small nature of it worked because if you keep it small if you keep it intimate like that and uh, by the way it's not that terribly intimate, they managed to get a 4,000-person warehouse unionized. Right. So they, they this worked on a pretty large scale at but the But didn't end of the they day. sort of strategically reject some of the like the celebrities who wanted to come and glom on and the kind of like turning it into a big yeah. whatever? I mean, because they, they, they saw the that ball. those yeah. didn't work. Like they yeah. there was a there was a push in Alabama with a warehouse there, and the, and it was a very professionalized situation, and it didn't work. You they know? did not answer Mark Ruffalo's emails, is what we're saying. <laughs> I also think, too, that when you are leading from 
within. Um, people know that you, this, your skin in the game is the exact same as theirs. And so you're also, you know, putting yourself yeah. on the line. And yeah. when people know that you are in the same wage bracket, you are living in the same community, you have the thing to lose. If you're trying to make life better for folks um, and you're willing to take a risk to do that, I think folks are going to be more willing to join you when they know that everybody has that skin in the game. And I think that's really important. Oh, yes. Nobody gets and to walk I, away. And again, like, I don't mean to extrapolate huge, crazy, big things from this, although Jody already did it by saying, you know, this is also part of the reason we're saying mutual aid societies pop up all over the country. But like, I... Are we sort of marching towards this sort of beautiful renaissance of labor rights and, la you know, a labor union renaissance and a like maybe some WPA shit and like that vibe uh, that I read about in the history books that labor unions were there to help you and they were your friend and it was cool. Um, I don't know. I got like an inkling of it, though. I did. I got a little inkling in my heart that we're going into I mean, a renaissance. The inkling, I think, is there. And I think it's 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 real. You know, I think it's important to remember that the other times in American history where there has been that sort of inkling and that sense of like labor as community and fun and all these things we're discussing and building from the grassroots up have been paired and matched with genuine real big structural reform and that's the thing that's missing now so this is you know you can say oh wow the iww made unions cool in the 19 teens but that was matched by like structural the progressive era structural reform and you know the wpa made you know paired art and labor but that was matched by the right. new deal and now you know i mean i was thinking about this getting ready for this show i mean warren and sanders have been in the ether for 10 15 years now yep and we haven't broken up the big banks. Amazon and uh, the banks had the best years ever last year. You know, we can't even get a, a sort of carried interest loophole uh, adjusted. You know, so it is like, where are those big structural reforms, and 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 why why has that not come in in hand in hand in the way it has in other eras of of history where labor unions have made a difference? I think part of it, for me anyway, is. We have lost our our capacity, or I don't even know if the word is capacity, but we have as a society no longer have shared values. Mm -hmm. And so in looking at this erosion of shared values, it's really hard to coalesce um, common good. The labor renaissance in my heart says, no, we do have shared values. We've just forgotten. And in and moments like this and people like Chris Smalls and Derek Palmer were out there reminding people that we do. And uh, and so, you know, so there's hope. And, OK. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you want to you want to wrap up? I was good. I would. You you want to you want well, to wrap us up there? Well, Jody? just to, just to glom on since we're going, you know, theory of everything here. Just to bring in yeah. one more big thread, uh, <laughs> I actually do think the pandemic plays into this. In that maybe maybe the pandemic reminded people how much they miss community and how yes. much being together and working together side by side with people really is the sort of secret sauce. And us Ugh. being isolated for so long maybe did get people to to come around to that. All right, folks, uh, let me know what you think, and we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue discussing. And we are back. And before we get into topic number two, I just want to let you guys know, uh, you know, there, there was a subway attack here in New York City. Uh, we are not going to talk about that today because there's just not enough um, information for us to kind of understand what's going on or what went on. Um, but just so you know, uh, I'm obviously aware that this really huge news story um, has happened. Um, okay, let us move on to topic number two. In Japan, they have this thing called Hajimeri no Otsukai, which I believe is the perfect pronunciation. 
it translates into first errand, where they basically send a two or three year old toddler onto the streets to run an errand in the hopes that they don't get hit by a car. And uh, there's even a show about it on Netflix. I think it's a Japanese show that Netflix is airing. And um, I mean, here's the thing. Children in Japan have an unusual degree of independence from a very early age. Uh, were you surprised by this phenomenon? Had you heard about this before? I hadn't, but I feel like they need unionizing. <laughs> if you're sending children yeah. out on the streets to do work for you, they yeah. need a union. But mm-hmm. I had never heard of this until I got the docket of what we were talking about today. And I was like, I, feel, I have a lot of feelings. Yeah, what was your first? I mean, because one of my first feelings is like my I started kind of getting heart palpitations. <laughs> I started getting heart palpitations thinking about I have a toddler sending her out to like go buy something. Like it feels wildly impossible that I would ever do that. What were your what feelings did it emerge? Actually, for you? my first thought for real was when I was a kid, my mom would. I when I say kid, I was like five. My mom would send me to the store with a note to buy her cigarettes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I remember being like, I did that as a kid. I would go buy cigarettes for my mom. And then I, whatever money was left over, I could buy candy. Oh, so, my God. And then as I got older, I would just keep the notes and then buy my own self cigarettes when I was like, you know, 12 or 13. But like, right. that's my first thought. And I, but it's just like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> That's what I first thought. Jody, what were Uh, your feelings? My first thought, I hadn't seen this before either. My first thought was immediately that I can use this as ammunition in an argument that I'm having, or maybe not an argument, but an ongoing conversation I'm having with my wife about our daughter, who is four years old and is soon to be five. And our conversation is how old can she be when she can walk to school by herself? Because our school, our school, well, I'll tell you my answer. Our school is at the bottom of our block. Like you okay. can you can Very walk out of our nice. house, get on stand on your micro scooter and momentum yeah. will carry you to the school. <laughs> you don't even have to walk. And so my argument has been that maybe when she's 5 or 6, we can just send her out the door her do and she that. can yeah. walk her down and walk to school. My Wife is not on board with this and in particular has pointed out that and this is where I think it gets into this 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 article that we've read in this sort of phenomenon that we're talking about. But it's particularly pointed out that like a neighbor will call ACS on us within 30 seconds if we do that, if we send a five year old out onto the street to walk down by herself. So, yes, like she might be capable of doing it. It's very close. We live in a very you know wonderful community. She knows like there's like six dogs along the way that she'll say hi to every morning as she walks there. But someone will see this and freak out. And, you know, that I think is where your choices as an individual parent and the sort of norms that you try to impose on your kid run into just larger societal norms and structures and so forth. And so I don't think we're going to be able to do it until she's considerably older. I also think there's a law in the book somewhere, but, you know, I'm pretending that doesn't exist. Wait, is there really a law in the book somewhere? I think it's something like... 12. I think 12 in New York City what? is the law okay. that you can't. That's oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, that's I, don't quote me on that, but it's it's it's, it's older than I want it to be. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I when I went I went to kindergarten six blocks away from my house growing up and I would walk with the neighbor boys every mm-hmm. day to school. Um, they were in like, I think, like third grade and fifth grade. So but then my grade school was half a block from me and I walked alone every day and went home for lunch. So, and also we would play outside and our mothers would just scream like, who's got Nancy? And it's like, she's at our house. So like the going out and wandering around alone, uh, I feel like I was doing it at a pretty young age. Well, I also remember, I mean, again, this is like such a generational thing, right? Because it's just they don't do that anymore. And uh, when I was in, we we lived in Virginia until I was like seven. And I remember, I think our preschool and and elementary were in the same building. We lived on a kind of hill that sort of overlooked 
the preschool. And I, I think what my parents would do would just be like, go to school. And I would run down this hill. There was a crossing guard. I would cross the street and then I would walk into school. So like weirdly, they could see me if they wanted right. to. Um, it was the equivalent of maybe like two blocks. Uh, but I did that by myself. I mean, probably as early as three or four like I definitely did do that um yeah and then in and then in in then in elementary school I mean yeah I was on my I was I by the time we moved to Palm Springs I was like in third grade I was going by myself like for 45 minute long walks I would walk on on my own uh and again but that was just like this was the 80s it was just a different era and I I honestly think I mean there's so many theories about why we lost that era the like fake the fake thing of like uh, people in vans are stealing your children or whatever like there was a, a rumor that thousands and thousands of children were being stolen this way except for like it wasn't true but it beca- it went into the American popular imagination that our kids are being taken you know so we were sort of we learned to be scared yeah. like we didn't used to be scared and now um I don't know, just I, I like also just temperamentally. It's funny because I put my kid on a scooter and I'm always worried she's going to go ahead of me and like not stop at the stoplight. Like she always does stop at the stoplight, but it's like I still feel not confident about her skills, you know? Yeah. I just but- can't picture being like go around the corner to the supermarket walk in like pick up a cabbage go to the checkout like i just can't picture her doing that but the this you know this this article in slate about this tv show which by the way looks like an amazing tv show and i will watch oh, it. it's but so cute yeah the, you know i think the larger sort of points that that this author makes on top of that about about the sort of cultural and infrastructure uh, environment in which toddlers and young kids can can go out into the community on their own is so important. And so, I mean, you know, from a cultural perspective, it's like it just all cascades from much larger questions about what are our values? What counts as a community? Is a community looking out for each other? Is a community pitted against each other? And so, you know, in the scenario of like your, your kid, and it happens to me too, you know, flying ahead and heading towards a red light on their scooter, you know, I, f- I freak out as well. But if I live in a town, in a community where my kid knows their neighbors, we've had block parties, we all go to school together, I know them, um, you know, maybe then I have a little more faith that someone that my kid knows is going to be on the street as well and right. is going to put their hand out and say, hey, hey, watch out, you know, or hey, I yeah, know you yeah, or whatever. Yeah, and like yeah. we're going to look out for each other in a sort of, you know, in that sort of deeper way. Um, and, not and to honestly, mention then like, all the infrastructure stuff about like... <sighs> Cars driving 40 way. miles per hour in the United States when they shouldn't in cities when they shouldn't be and, you know, protected bike lanes not existing and yada, yada, yada. All that. I mean, and so so Japan's infrastructure, like you said, it's it's set up for a lot of these things. The speed limits are low. The neighborhoods have small blocks, which means the kids have to cross the street a lot. But it also means that drivers are extra conscious of um crossings uh they have they don't have raised sidewalks on the street so the pedestrians and the cyclists and the drivers all sort of share the road everyone's just kind of like paying attention to each other uh which a which is a a school of thought in 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 urban planning that i've heard of before Uh, the other fun thing that happens is um oftentimes there'll be this kind of walking school bus concept where older kids kind of pick up younger Mm -hmm. kids and they walk to school together in a sort of morning parade of kids where and they so stop the for younger, cigarettes along the way and they saw at every bodega yeah. they're getting cigs and they um they learn about the neighborhood because they're walk so because this like four-year-old is walking with a 10-year-old you know what i mean so they're sort of getting they're getting their bearings through these more mm-hmm. like these group outings and it's not like two and three-year-olds are out there doing errands every day this is just like a a one time thing that they do and then they then get more engaged in these more group things but but the, you're just generally more likely as a child to be on your own in a lot of these like transit situations in Japan than you are in the United States uh, and I culturally Liz do you think we could ever get to a place where Americans we, we could just get on board with this as opposed to like calling child protective services you know, I think 
It's like, I think you've all kind of nailed where we would need to be to be on board. And that is to have a real investment in neighborhood and community. You know, it's Mm -hmm. the advent of the air conditioner being a household item that people could afford Mm -hmm. brought people out of their lawns and socializing and into their homes in the summer. And it was a real setback for communities and neighborhoods because you were no longer out and about and and spending time with people in those yeah. ways that gave everybody freedom and security, right? Yeah. So, you know, what are we willing to commit to? I feel, you know, I feel like I'm kind of the negative person on this panel, but like, you know, when I look at people <laughs> just, just screaming about things of community needs um, and not wanting to be participate in any of them, whether it's COVID masks or vaccines or um, any of it. And, and, and just like hesitancy towards understanding your responsibility in the greater good. Um, it just makes me feel hopeless. And I, it makes me feel sad too, because I think growing up with that freedom, it was really great to be able to, be out and about and explore the neighborhood and play hide and seek and find those little nooks and, you know, create my own reality around. Did you grow up in a city or like? I grew up in Minneapolis. So I lived within the city, but in a neighborhood that was um, lower middle class neighborhood, but really thriving and very much, um, very much all on the same sort of economic plane. And we really relied on each other. And, you know, when you live in a place where, you all pull together and buy a snowblower and you just make that shit happen because, you know, right. it's like a nightmare. You is- need your neighbors with inclement weather in a way that maybe other people aren't aren't don't understand. You know, so. I also one thing I want to say there's maybe like something we could all hang our hats on hats on. Yeah, whatever. Um is that the is the Japanese concept of uh, aisatsu, uh, which is the Japanese greeting culture. So one thing that they teach their kids to do is to just say hello to everybody that passes by. Uh, and I like that idea. And it's something I sort of like when I'm within like three or four blocks of my apartment, I kind of do say hello to everyone that passes by. I'm that asshole. Um, but I, I also sort of like do it on purpose of like, hey, you see me, I see you. Like if shit hits the fan, I got your back. Like it's just a, like me trying to create an orbit of people that would like recognize, remember, and maybe stop me from walking into a bus that I don't see coming, you know. Um, and same for my kid. I mean, they're literally one day my kid started just crazily running and uh, out of, you know, out of nowhere. And this random person on the block, like, stopped her, like, picked her up and like, brought her back to me, you know. And I was like, thank you, you know. And uh, and and it's like, we need people like that. We just need people to do that. And so I, I love this idea of the Japanese greeting culture. And I think my my homework assignment to you, people of Fake the Nation, this is a, and you know, you knew probably knew that this was coming try and just say hi to more people in your neighborhood just like say hi let it start there it doesn't have to be difficult uh and maybe things can blossom from there you know what i mean there's a chance for us i think all right let us move on um, to topic number three. But before we get there, I just want to do a quick electoral contests to watch, races to watch. Uh, folks, our friend Joshua at the Working Families Party wanted to remind us that there are a bunch of Working Families events that you can participate in. There's phone bank stuff. There's a WFP welcome gathering um, for people who are new to the party. Again, like I mentioned, I've, wor- I've, I've voted a lot for the for people on the Working Families Party line. Um, there's a national call party, uh, again, a phone bank. Banking. You can sign up. There's the Texas Big Three. This is like their biggest campaign. Uh, they're working on some really narrow uh, races there in Texas. Uh, and he reminds us that the runoffs there are really important. They usually have 30 to 40 percent turnout. So if you c- could reach a small number of people, it could have a huge impact um, on those Texas runoffs. Uh, and also, 
Cecilia on Patreon wanted me to remind you about Sister District. And we've talked about Sister District in the past. Uh, If you safely live in a blue district, uh, you can sign up at Sister District to volunteer to get Democratic elected in swing districts. So if you've got a lot of energy but nowhere very local to put it in, um, look up Sister District and see how you can get involved. They're being really targeted, really specific about the, the districts that they're trying to mobilize. Thank you so much. Keep these things coming. You can email us at fakethenation at headgum.com um, for uh, specific races to watch or uh, like uh, like Joshua and Cecilia. You can give us ideas on um, this kind of mobilization. All right, let's get into it with topic number three. So topic number three is a bit of a grab bag of some random uh, topics. First off, a study of 40,000 American adults found that people who are fit and work out a lot tend to drink more than their less fit peers. How do you explain this? Were you surprised by this? Well, um, I I believe the study sort of indicated that as working out has become more of a social activity, um, it makes sense that you would then go drinking after you work out or kind of other social activities would glom onto it. Um, So, you know, I suppose in that... In that sense, it makes it makes sense to me. Right. That it's just the like uh, we play base, you know, softball every Friday and afterwards right. we go get a beer. That right. kind or like, of thing. you know, the rise of CrossFit, which is very social and communal. And then you go right. out and you get a drink right. and so forth. And so, you know, I don't think it's that. But the, it's it, the thing that doesn't make sense is that a lot of those people that are also doing CrossFit are yeah. also like they're having like their avocado smoothies and they're like protein shakes and they're, you know, they're very health conscious otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Liz, have, what do you think about this this connection? I mean, I think, uh, I don't know. I feel like if you're really set on binging a show, uh, you're just, don't want to get up so you're not getting alcohol. That's that's my take, my hot take. Um, but I guess I guess I don't really, guess I don't really have that much to think or say on it, other than. Um, <laughs> but I like this body... counterintuitive take that couch potatoes actually drink less because they are so lazy. They yeah, can't they're even just too late. Like you know, you're just invested in watching mm-hmm. all 27 <laughs> seasons of Breaking Bad, and you're just yeah. gonna power yeah. through. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and you know, any liquid in the body is gonna just like uh-huh. stop yep. and start your whole rhythm. Um, but also, you know, I think that if you're burning calories and your body is becoming a machine, the more you drink, um, the less you feel um, affected by what you're drinking. So um, because the, you're, you're, yeah getting rid of your toxins and so um it may not even be that you're maybe you're drinking more but i think there's just more instances to drink i think that um you know jody's on to that you know it's just like but can everything i, can I tell you that now. that this what you just said and reminded me and this story reminded me of one of my favorite sports quotes ever which is okay. there's there's a bunch of like pro athletes who eat terribly and you would think mm-hmm. like that that wouldn't be the case but they just eat tons of mcdonald's there's a bunch of athletes who just like eat mcdonald's every day and you know so forth. and so there's this quote from i think it was randy moss i don't know as a receiver in the nfl and they caught and, and like a cameraman found him as in getting out of his car in the parking lot of the training facility and he's like holding like two bags of mcdonald's and he's like like you're a pro athlete like you have you know all the resources in the world like what, what do you do when you eat at mcdonald's and he just goes if the if the oven's hot enough you can burn anything and I just, I just think about that all the I time. Mean, that's that if you're, kind of if what you're I working think. out a ton, and I feel that too. When I'm working out a ton, it's just like insatiable. Yeah, I could put anything. You know, I think that starts to change once you hit 35 or 40. But certainly for a while, yeah, if the oven's hot enough, you'll burn anything. But also, but also it's I think about that's a, just about a, weight. You know, that's not about yeah. healthy. That's not about like what yeah. is it doing right. to your arteries and your cholesterol and like your bones. Right, right. How that's just how it looks on the outside. But there's also the other thing that I think happens for me. It's not, and I don't drink, so like this doesn't, you know, it doesn't affect me on drinking. But like when I am doing really well with exercise and doing the exercise a bunch, I that I experience the halo effect, which this piece talked about, which you're like. I just did a yoga class, so fuck yeah, I'm going to have this chocolate croissant for breakfast, you know? So you feel entitled because you just did the thing. And I think that halo effect, uh, like, happens a lot in these situations for me, at least personally. I will completely sign away everything because I did a yoga class, you know? 
Um, that's if you catch me in that air of superiority. Good luck, guys. I uh, also wonder too, though, like you know, the people who are drinking more and working out are they also like, what are you absorbing the liquor with? You know, so are you also eating food that's absorbing it or is it like is that your sugars i don't know like it's just like there's a whole lot of other variables to like what goes on what when you are out drinking are you also eating snacks are you just pounding right what's going on how fast does it go to your head there's also this weird other side related thing to this which is that animal studies show that exercise and alcohol actually light up the same part of the brain that's related to reward reward processing which suggests that like they're both pleasurable in this in the same way for so it's like you're just lighting it up again. Like you exercise, it lights up, that part of the brain lights up, and you drink in that part of the brain lights up. So that's a, a weird other area of this uh, strange phenomenon. But okay, let us move on to a, the next item in our grab bag, which is, um, I just, taxes are due, guys. Uh, how does that make you feel? Never good. Always making an assessment of where they're going and then feeling bad about it. So, um, you know... But, you know, it's the necessary evil that um, I just wish my taxes didn't constantly go everywhere I live to putting more cops in places. They don't seem to be helpful. Uh, I know I've said this in years past, but again, in some other countries, they send you a document that says, this is what it looks like you've earned this year. Does this look right to you? And then you go... Yeah, that looks right. And you send that back in and they're like, based on that thing, you owe this. And you're like, okay, cool. I feel like the system where I'm, again, I'm a freelancer and they give you healthcare. I feel like the system where I'm, I'm a freelancer. So my taxes are just like unbelievably annoying every year because I, my income comes from 500 different places. And so every year I live in fear that I'm going to accidentally lie because what if one of the 500 places didn't send me the proper mm-hmm. documentation, right? So every year I live in this just like, did am I lying? Am I not lying? Did I, you know, and it doesn't have to be that way. Like, why are we playing coy with this game? Just tell me what it shows on your records i'll verify it you know what i mean I, anyways so, that's my again i just i have said it before i'm gonna say it again until someone fucking changes the tax code so that that happens i've uh, over the last couple months been dealing with a very similar situation which you know my 2019 taxes someone took a closer look at them they got readjusted something had slipped through the cracks i owed a little bit more than i i had paid and so i've yeah. been going back with the irs and you know it's annoying because I paid it and then they didn't have record that I paid it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I will say I've been having this sort of back and forth with the IRS over like, you know, something with two zeros at the end of it. Right. Okay. And I'm watching the conversation about, you know, Amazon <laughs> and Elon Musk uh-huh. and so forth yeah. playing out. And I will say this part of it's just like, screw this you know like Mm -hmm. i'm dealing with a couple hundred bucks here and we can't just go get the big money you know and there's on there's these and and you know there's a big conversation to be had about the irs is underfunded and actually the irs needs to be empowered to be able to go out and not just go after people like me but actually go after higher earners and they actually audit people who make twenty five thousand dollars or less more than they audit people who make hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars and so you know sense I have found just like I've just found it very frustrating and you know I I'm going to pay it. I believe in, you know, that if it's put to the right yeah. use, government should be well funded, but there was part of me as I was writing that check and watching stuff play out being like I cannot freaking believe this. Yeah, no. I mean that is an excellent fucking point. And I've we've talked about that in past years too that le- the people under 25,000 get audited um at a higher rate and it's insane and also no business person would say that's a good business practice for the goals of the organization like it's just incredibly ridiculous um it's just the people who earn less than twenty five thousand dollars are just like more beholden to you and they're scared i mean i always think the resources to fight it yeah 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 yeah. uh so okay so uh just 
So there it is, folks, your taxes. If you have any just other things that we forgot to rail against here, you let me know on the social medias that we should all stop reading. Um, the, here's the last little item on our uh, grab bag. Uh, Bruce Bostelman, he's a Nebraska state lawmaker. He was repeating a rumor that schools were, were accommodating children who self-identify as cats by putting litter boxes in the schools. Uh, and this is what he said. He actually said they meow, they bark, and they interact with their teachers in this fashion. And now schools are wanting to put litter boxes in the schools for these children to use. How is this sanitary? And he did this in like a sort of, I think it was a televised debate. Uh, <laughs> uh, this story came out a few weeks ago, and he actually has since retracted the claim. Wait, it's um, not true? <laughs> I only read the first half of the article. <laughs> It's not true. Oh. There are no cat litters in schools. Um, in uh, I was just scanning Facebook and I saw it and I just figured it, would, it was true. <laughs> the thing is, it did. It's a rumor that did come from Facebook, as you said, Jody. Um, I think it started in December, where some member of the public brought it up in a school board meeting uh, for for schools in the northwest of Detroit. They were saying that there were cat litter boxes there. I mean. Obviously, like Liz, what's the uh, calculus uh, for for someone? And, and and I only point this up because it's just such a it's it's so fucking hilariously egregious. But what's the calculus? Knowing that a moment like this is going to go viral, what's the calculus for the politician to just make shit up like this? I think when you have a voting base that is susceptible to anything. All of this fear-based conspiracy garbage starts with, well, what if they, and then that just becomes, <laughs> yeah. they are. And uh, as we've seen over and over and over again, um, there is a freight train that takes off and just gets repeated. And I don't even know what to say because it's like, you know, in the world that I traffic, you know, there's nine laws on the books where a doctor has to tell a patient they can have their abortion reversed, that there is a process with which they can have their abortion reversed. And it's like, the science has said it's not true. It's not true. It can happen. And yet, and yet, somebody made a suggestion that what if this was a thing? And then it just becomes this conversation that's entertained. And that I, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> Well, to your to your point earlier about kind of a loss of shared values, I think one of those values that has lost that's been lost is that if you are in a position of public power, you have a responsibility to like watch the stuff that comes out of your mouth. And I think part of it is that elected officials think that they're just the same as anyone else on the Internet. Just I read some stuff. I, I, I float it. I'll figure out, you know, kind of if it's true later. We'll see how it plays. So I think like part of it is he believed this rumor about people identifying as cats and part of it. He just didn't have that step to just say well you know let me let me let me wait sit with my responsibility as an elected official but you know my favorite part of that is that if you read the article he then says the article says Bostelman said you know after he made the statement and people reacted Bostelman said that he quote planned to discuss the issue with the CEO of the Nebraska Department of Health and Human Services so can you imagine if you are the CEO of the Nebraska Department of Health and Human uh -huh. Services it's the middle of a pandemic Obesity rates in Nebraska, I looked them up, are really bad. You have a lot of things on your plate as the CEO of Nebraska Department of Health and Human Services. And instead, you got a call from an elected official saying, hey, can you help me run down this rumor that I saw on Facebook that people who <laughs> self-identify as cats are being given litter boxes to go to the bathroom in the corner of their schools? That is now your job as the CEO right. of the Nebraska Department of Health and Human Services. Well, I've also, in, in our, you know, part of what we do at Abortion Access Friend is we track extremists. Mm -hmm. And this furries narrative is out there. Hmm. And we've seen it dozens of times in speeches from people who run small churches, people talking to their um, communities about the fact that, um, and, and in this framing of gender identity, um, they are throwing this furries, this furries concept into the mix. And, this has just heightened and taken it to the next level. But um, it's so much of the stuff that like when one of those stories makes the news, it's like termites in your house. If you see one, there's a jillion people pushing this kind of narrative. And I think 
progressives and just regular folks in the world who are busy with their lives do not understand how much oxygen these things get and how much it's repeated and that it's permeated in circles uh, way more than we think. Yeah. No, it's... um. This is also one of those moments where I I would say to, like, Mr. Bostelman, like, journalists are your friends. Like, if they're good, if there's really cat litter boxes in schools, like, they're going to figure it out and write a real legitimate story with sources and, you know, all of that. If it's just a Facebook post and that's all you've seen, you haven't seen it in a reputable news source, like... That's where you have to stop and ask but, yourself but, but, if it's something you could ever. I know, repeat. I know what you're saying, but reputable news source means nothing at the at this right. point. I mean, that's the huge. <laughs> know, no, that's I the know. big part of it, right? Something that floats across Facebook versus something seen in a, you know, established this news report. This is where this is where media train. This is where yeah. um, read like training on w- figuring out what is real and what isn't and what has sources. What like all of that. It should be like just a part of education now because. It's true that it's hard to tell uh, sometimes. And it's hard to tell, especially if you have no actual training in it. Yeah, but this so, bar is a lot lower than that. <laughs> I don't think he, you do. Well, on what day of training do they tell sh- you that should, the cat litter thing knows. is not real? <laughs> right, right, right. But he probably <laughs> fucking knows. Because also, the, because also the thing that a lot of these people are looking for is a viral moment, even if it's a lie. Yeah. And so that's the other thing is uh, the, the culture that that – that says get a viral moment even if it, even if it isn't true like that shit is what we need to also work on yeah. all right folks that is the end of the show i am so glad to have spent this time with both of you because you're both so amazing and both so smart and both so funny and i want the people of fake the nation to be able to find you and all the wonderful things that you do liz winstead where do they do that uh, you can find me on social at liz winstead i spell my name with two z's or uh, at Abortion Front on social and um, the Feminist Buzzkills Live podcast, wherever you get your pods. It's a weekly roundup of all of the really great things that are happening to your reproductive rights. <laughs> <laughs> Jody, where do they find you? Um, I'm on social at J O D Y A V I R G A N, Jody Avergan. But also, I do these two shows for Radiotopia um, this day in esoteric political history, three times a week. Uh, and then this new show, uh, Oprah Demix, which I'm helping, helping make happen, which I am really in love with and I think is going to be a giant show. So, you want to be someone who says you were listening from the very beginning. So, go check out <laughs> Oprah Demix. Um, absolutely subscribe now and folks you know where to find me and all the things that I do um, and just a reminder Chicago Irvine New York's Joe's Pub uh, Worcester there's going to be more dates as soon as I'm allowed to uh, disclose them and uh, what I would really like to do is thank all the people that make the show a possibility that is our fantastic producer Danielle Jones Wesley our amazing sound engineer Stephanie Aguilar. Theme music was written by Gabby Alter. And as always, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts because it really does help people find the show. You can email us at fakethenation at headgum.com and join the Patreon for bonus content and so much more at patreon.com slash Farsad. And we'll be back in your earballs next week. That was a HeadGum Podcast.